Good morning. I uh, I was reminded this week as I was looking at this passage of scripture. I uh, I grew up about a 20-minute drive from where we are right now. And a number of years ago, when I returned to Tulsa to be a pastor here, I thought it would might be might be weird a little bit, but um, it's interesting how periodically I have these awkward encounters because I meet somebody again that I haven't seen for years, and you know somebody I grew up with, and I say, "Hey, we're catching up." They say, "Hey, what do you do for a living?" I, go, I pastor a church. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> and then there's that awkward moment where, where I go, no, really. And they're like, really? <laughs> so it, it's, it's interesting how <clears throat> even at the age of 60, uh, in the minds of some people, you're still boxed in by what you did when you were 16. Um, I thought about that this week because we're in a series of lessons from the Gospel of John, and we've been in John chapter 6 for a couple of weeks. And we're going to come to a, a portion of this story today in John 6 where, <clears throat> where the people practice what is called in, in logic the fallacy of origin. The fallacy of origin basically says uh, because you come from a particular place, you can't be great, and you can't be great because you come from that place. Um, it's a faulty logical assumption that, that geography determines accomplishment. Well, just in this chapter, we, we started chapter 6 with Jesus uh, performing the greatest miracle short of the resurrection that's included in the Bible. It shows up in all four Gospels. It says that he fed 5,000 men, assuming the women and children that were there, probably close to 20,000 people total, fed them with just five little individual loaves and two little fish. It was an incredible event. He heard the crowd whispering about making him king. I mean, after all, a guy that can, I mean, even 2,000 years later, how do you get elected to be president in America? You just promise that we'll give you everything for free. There's something about human nature that is drawn to that. And so Jesus withdrew. He, he didn't want to be a part of, of their plans to kidnap him and take him to Jerusalem and pronounce that he was the new king. He withdrew into the mountains, and the, the crowd scattered for the evening. The disciples got in a boat and went across the water on their way to a city called Capernaum. Jesus came to them in the ship during a storm that night by miraculously walking on the water. Um, when he came into the boat, the boat was immediately at landfall, and, and that whole night was a, a miraculous encounter that the disciples experienced, but the crowds back where they had been the day before, they wake up the next morning, and guess what? They're hungry. Well, let's find that Jesus fellow. I mean, he fed us yesterday. Maybe he'll fix us breakfast. And so they start looking for him, but they can't find him. 
They know he didn't leave in any of the boats. There's, there's no way he could have. So they spread out and begin to search for him, and they eventually find him in Capernaum. Maybe they heard the disciples talking about how that's the next place that they were going to go, but, but they, fi- they find him not only in Capernaum, but teaching in the synagogue the next day. And so they come to him, those that, that arrive first, and, and basically they present themselves as um, uh, followers who are ready for breakfast. And Jesus makes the first of what will become his uh, I am statements seven times in the Gospel of John. He'll, he'll use some sort of uh, analogy, a, a metaphor to describe himself. He makes the first one here using the I am formula, which was a conscious connection from himself to the God of the Old Testament that the Jews worshipped. I am. I am the bread of life. And so they had a, a back and forth that we looked at last week, and they were, they were dull. They were intentionally dull in refusing to understand what he was saying because they wanted bread for their stomachs. He was offering bread for their souls. And so that conversation goes back and forth, and, and I want to pick it up today. Last week we, we called it the bread of life offered this morning I want to talk about the bread of life explained. That conversation began in John chapter 6 verse 22 uh, and finished in verse 40. I want us to pick up in verse 41 today. And I've got, I've really got two simple points today and it, it bo- they both are related to how the crowds approach Jesus. The first one, I've called it soft-spoken humiliation. Because they, just the day before, they wanted this Jesus who was one of them. He had come out from among them. They wanted him to be made king. But he clearly is not interested in being an earthly king. He's making the case that he is the Son of God sent from heaven to bring life. And now they're not so sure what they want to think about him. Because he says he's come from heaven, but we know where he came from. Because we know his parents. He's a hometown boy. He's from around here. He can't possibly be the Messiah. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. (coughs) Excuse me. So then the Jews were complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, let's talk about those four verses. This soft-spoken humiliation really is the way that they're sort of disrespecting him again because... He can't possibly be anything special because we know where he came from. We know his parents. He's from around here. There were whispers regarding his background, but nobody was serious enough to confront his claim that he was the Messiah. I mean, after all, he was a hometown boy, but also he was making claims regarding a relationship with the Father that they just could not accept. That was their earthly presumption. They were judging Jesus by their expectations of what the Messiah would look like. But he's going to answer them with his eternal purpose. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, stop complaining among yourselves. Now, let me, let me stop right there. 
In verse 41, it says, so the Jews were complaining about him. And in verse 43, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, stop complaining among yourselves. Let me tell you about that word complaining. Translated here, complaining, it's really the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word that is used when, the, when the, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness following Moses, and it says they grumbled or they murmured. It's that word. Now, John picks that vocabulary word on purpose, I'm certain, because he's connecting these people who are standing in front of the promised Messiah and refusing to see him or accept him, and they're they're, they're all a buzz among themselves. You know, the, the word murmuring, it, it doesn't imply a big, bold, face-to-face -face conversation. Murmuring is when, you, is when you say something rude, but you say it under your breath. You know, you're so brave that you're going you're gonna to rebel, but you don't want anybody to know. That's what they were doing. In the Old Testament, following Moses, they, they were saying things like, you know, and it's funny because in this story, they've made Moses the hero. I mean, Moses is the grandest of all. They, in fact, they disrespected Jesus in the first part of this conversation last week when they said, hey, if you want us to think you're better than Moses, you need to do miracles greater than Moses. Moses gave us bread every day for 40 years. And Jesus said, well, did he? God gave you bread every day for 40 years. Moses just said, pay attention, there's bread on the ground. But they had elevated Moses to be this, this sort of superhero when the fact of the matter was at the time when Moses was actually doing the leading, they were always like, you know, we're having that same bread today. We've had it every day for the last 37 years. You know, if we could get some real meat in here, we'd make this bread a lot, taste a lot better. There's never enough water in here. What is wrong with that guy? He knows we're in the desert. He should be doing something. They murmured all the time. John lifts that attitude tied to that word all the way here into the New Testament and says, here's this crowd that just saw a miraculous sign. It should have turned their eyes to Jesus and said, man, if this guy can feed us lunch miraculously, imagine what he can do to save me from my separation from God because of my sin. The sign was to push them to Jesus, but they never got past the bread. And here they are on day two saying, we want more bread. And they were complaining. Well, who does he think he is? He's claiming to have a special relationship with the... All right, well, let's, let's see. Let's start over. I was born. Here they are. They're murmuring, right? So Jesus uses that. that he, he understands what's going on. So he says, stop complaining. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
The reason Jesus is here, he wants them to understand he's not here to provide lunch or breakfast or any other meal. He's here to make it possible for them to come out of the chasm that separates them from God because of their sin. He's here not to provide lunch, but to provide the bread of life that gives life. Now, it's gonna be fascinating because as we read through this passage, he's gonna talk about that whole Moses worship thing that they have going on. And he's gonna say, yeah, they had manna in the wilderness for 40 years, and guess what? They all died. Because the manna only had the power, like physical bread, to sustain you for a, a, an amount of time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a bread that gives you life that... I was born. All right. I apologize for that. Um, either the devil or the sound guy is not interested in the sermon. All right. Let's let's read the next. Uh, let's read the next verses. Jesus is here because he's offering something that they can't get anywhere else, and he he lays it out again. I'm a little strong here. He's. Um, and so stop complaining. Let me give you something that you really need. So he's going to turn to prophecy. In verse 45, he goes to scripture, which is what a good rabbi would do. He's, <clears throat> he's apparently teaching in the synagogue on this day, and he turns to scripture. Now, he's going to quote Isaiah 54, verse 13. Now, there's some speculation that um, that, that was the reading in the synagogue that day. It would have been just like Jesus to take what they already had prepared for that day as they met in the synagogue and then to give an explanation of how he was the fulfillment. He says in verse 44, verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now, a couple of things in those verses that I want you to see. He quotes Isaiah 54, 13. It may have been, like I said, the synagogue reading for the day. But let me give you the context. They shall be taught of God. The prophet Isaiah is trying in his day to encourage the nation of God's people. They know that there's been, that there's a judgment coming and it's called the exile. God is going to allow the Babylonians to take his people out of the promised land, carry them off, and they'll spend 70 years in another land because they've been unfaithful to God and refuse to keep the covenant that, that brings blessing. This prophecy is an encouragement saying that you'll come back from that exile and at some moment in time, you'll be taught actually by God himself. 
Well, it didn't happen in the Old Testament. And anytime we have a prophecy in the Old Testament that's not fulfilled in the Old Testament, then we continue to look for the fulfillment of that prophecy in the New Testament or even in our time. Because it wasn't fulfilled at the end of the exile, it's a prophecy still waiting to be fulfilled. Jesus is standing in the synagogue that day. He's been telling them that he is sent from the Father, that he has come from heaven. He's claiming divinity. And here he turns to the, to the text that they have assigned for that particular day. And he says, look, if you'll listen to me, this prophecy will be fulfilled. You will be taught by God. But then he says, but, but don't hear me say that, that, that you've seen the Father, because nobody has seen the Father except the one that he sent. He's the one that has seen the Father. When you look at that verse, uh, the second he, the second pronoun he in Greek is emphatic because Jesus is claiming divinity. He's saying, I'm the only one that has actually seen the Father. Verse 47 Remember I said anytime you have a double truly or a double amen or maybe an, an older version of verily, verily, that's Jesus calling attention to something really important that he's about to say. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Now, there's an interesting tension here that is a, a regular debate in, even in our generation. A tension between the divine and the human aspects of salvation. Listen, uh, coming to God, let's, let me just chase a rabbit here. For, for, for a moment, coming to God from the human side requires an action of human will. But coming to God from the divine side requires an action of God's will. There is no salvation apart from the drawing power of God, which is his love put on display for us. By the same token, salvation is never completed without the willingness of a human to hear and to learn from God. Now, the problem here is we get into these theological debates, uh, and we call them, I mean, the ancient church called them the, 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 the Augustinian-Pelagian debate. Modern uh, churches call it the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Let me, just, let me just lay this out for you. Does the Bible tell, you, tell us that Salvation rests with God and that he makes a decision, that he chooses us, that he secures everything necessary for our salvation. In other words, salvation can't happen unless God does it. Yes, the Bible teaches that. Does the Bible teach that God wants everybody to come to know him and, that, and he doesn't want anybody to perish? Does the Bible teach that the invitation is legitimately offered to every single person? Does the, does the Bible teach that, that you are uh, expected to see the, the offer of grace that is, that is presented and to respond by faith? Yes, it teaches that. So pastor, what are you? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? I'm a biblical teacher. Now, I'm not here to step on your toes if you, if you lean one way or the other, but let me tell you this. 
There is a tension in the reality of what God has done in the world to make it possible for us to be reconciled to him. And that tension has a divine side and that tension requires something of us. We are not automatons or puppets that are simply acted upon. Neither, neither is he a God who is somehow uh, hamstrung because of what we may or may not do. God is God and we are not. But salvation requires God doing his part and he requires us to receive him. Now, we use language just like that. We say, well, I received Jesus or, or I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart or I found Jesus. The reason we talk that way is because from our side of things, that's how it feels. Because when we, when we are looking for something, when we know that, that, that there's, there's something that we don't have, that we need to have, there's something missing, and we're looking for that, and all of a sudden it dawns on us, it becomes clear, there's a clarity that, that, that we've never had before, and we say, that's it, I want that. We say, I found Jesus. Yes, you did. But you'd have never found him if the Father hadn't drawn you by his love, if he hadn't put you in a place where you could have that clarity, where you could be exposed to something that God is doing in you. So who takes credit for salvation? Well, God does. But don't ever walk around saying, I'm not a Christian because I guess I just wasn't elect. God is calling you. He's offering the bread of life. And he wants you to, by faith, receive the grace that he's put right in front of you. We live with that tension. We can't explain all the ins and outs of the way God works in the world. But we do know this. It is all God. But he requires a response from us. You see, in this section, Jesus is talking about how he is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. That's an open invitation. Anyone may eat from it and not die. Let me tell you what salvation does, what Christ does in salvation. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, you'll find a discussion of one aspect of temple life from the Old Testament that we really don't talk about too much. It's the part about the veil. Now, if you don't know about the veil, let me tell you. In the Old Testament, before there was a temple that was a permanent structure, there was a tabernacle, which was a movable structure. But the tabernacle and later the temple were both designed in the same basic way. And they were centered on uh, a space in the middle that was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant, in other words, the earthly throne of God was to be kept. And it was the place that represented the presence of God among his people in that secret place. Now there's an opening, there's a doorway, but the doorway is blocked by a massive curtain made with the heaviest materials and, and it was everything about this veil, this curtain screamed, keep out. You aren't qualified to stand in this space. It was the presence of God. Our sin kept us from being at ease there. 
Only one person, the high priest, on only one day of year, the Day of Atonement, what we call today Yom Kippur, only on that one day could that one person enter into that space. He would offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Then he would enter into that space where he would offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people. Now, he didn't sit down. He wasn't welcome to stay. He didn't chat with God. Once he'd offered the sacrifice, he came back out and the veil closed again. Keep out. You're not worthy. You're not allowed to be in the presence of God. Well, that veil was made with three colors. It was blue, it was scarlet, and it was purple. Everything about the temple was an object lesson about what God was trying to teach his people. In that veil made with three colors, blue represents divinity. Blue is the color of of God. Scarlet, the color of blood, that represents humanity. Purple. Purple represents royalty. But how do you get purple? You get purple because you mix blue and red. Even the veil itself that divided God from man built into the veil was this story of a God becoming a man and standing as king so that the blockage between God and man could be removed. Well, on the day that Jesus died on the cross, most people were caught up in the more obvious signs. The day Jesus died on the cross, the sky went dark, the sun refused to shine. Everybody saw that. But deep inside the temple, there was a heavy curtain, a veil in the holy place. And the moment Jesus died, it is finished, he said. Not meaning that his suffering on the cross was finished, but meaning that the sacrifice of paying for sin was finished. It says that that veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What happened? God the Father looked at Jesus on the cross and made him sin and he turned away. First time that relationship was ever broken in all of eternity, he turned away because he refused to look at sin and his wrath poured out on the cross. And having accepted that sacrifice as sufficient, as adequate to pay the penalty, for all sin, God himself reached down from heaven and ripped that veil as if to say, in Christ, you're now welcome. Come into my presence, take a seat, and let's talk. Man, man, here Jesus is saying, no one has seen the Father except the one who came from the Father. But if you'll eat this bread... It, we're, we're, just, we're just months away from the cross. I'm going to solve this problem. And you're going to be able to see God, to be in his presence, to be welcomed into his presence. But you have to hear me. You have to take of this bread. In verse 51, Jesus says, I will give this bread I, and he says, I give it for the life of the world. It is both voluntary and vicarious. Well, let's go to verse 52. 
if soft-spoken humiliation was the first approach to Jesus, now there's outspoken hostility. In verse 52, we have what I've called a dogged misunderstanding. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, when you're murmuring, and everybody's kind of murmuring, which is the, the picture here, it's not unusual for dissatisfied people to break out into angry arguments with each other. But that's what happens here. An angry intramural argument breaks out as the natural result of their grumbling and complaining. Now, they knew that all this talk about the bread of life, they knew Jesus wasn't suggesting cannibalism, but they couldn't seem to fathom what it was that he was actually suggesting. He was using figurative language, but but they just refused to make sense of it. And, and what makes it such, such a shame is uh, they knew what it was to, to talk like that. In fact, um, if you look up, I'll give you some verses, uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, Jeremiah 15.16, and Ezekiel 2.8-10. All Old Testament passages where the prophets uh, use this idea that the Word of God is something that you inwardly digest. I mean, they understood that kind of language. In fact, we use this kind of language all the time. We say, well, uh, I, I just devoured that book. Really? Did it, how did it taste? No, we know what that means. When you devour a book, you just, you just can't get enough of it. You just, you read it all the way through. Or sometimes we say, you know, I, I'm still chewing on that piece of information. I haven't quite made a decision yet. I'm chewing on it. Or we're liable to say that guy swallowed an outrageous lie. He swallowed a hook, line, and sinker. We use language like that all the time. It's figurative language. That's what Jesus is doing here. And yet they are determined to not go there. Why? Because they don't want figurative bread. They want breakfast. We still live in a generation that doesn't want what Jesus is offering. They want Jesus to give them what they want. I'm sorry, that's not how this works. Jesus said, I'm offering you bread that brings life. And all you want is, that bre is bread that will get you through to lunch. They were serious about their misunderstanding. I, I wonder how many times people, there are people who are seriously seeking Jesus. I believe that. And they're, they're looking to understand things. But there are other people who any objection will do because they don't really want to understand. If you understand Jesus, there is an implication there of the kind of life that you'll be called to live. You have to give control of yourself to somebody else. They were intentional about their misunderstanding. But then Jesus does something that just makes me laugh. He doubled down, he doubled down, doubles down on the metaphor. I mean, if I'm teaching these people and I'm talking about the bread of life and they're just not getting it, I'm probably at some point going to go, okay, all right, forget that. Let's come at it from a different angle. Let me give you, let me, let me, let me, let me explain it a different way. That's not what Jesus does because he knows that their misunderstanding is intentional. 
He's just going to double down. And when he does, he's going to expand this idea of the bread of life. And when he expands it, it's going to be even more offensive to these Jewish listeners than it was when, with what he first said. Look at this. Um, Verse 20, 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, there's a double truly, double amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Okay, okay, here's the thing about that. That language doesn't sound that odd to us because we, we're used to that kind of language. When we, we talk, this is not about the Lord's Supper, but we use that kind of language when we talk about the Lord's Supper. But you've got to consider these Jews that, that, that Jesus is talking to. First of all, to be a good Jew meant that you kept a kosher diet. A kosher diet is, uh, according to the Old Testament law, the things that you could eat and the things that you couldn't eat. So part of a kosher diet was some animals were just not allowed for you to eat. But the other part of a kosher diet was even the animals that you could eat, they had to be prepared in a particular way because the blood was the symbol of life. And so really it, it, it was partly a respect for, uh, for the meat that was being provided for you that you didn't disrespect the life that was given for you to have that meat. In modern times, for example, uh, if you go to, a, uh, for example, a slaughterhouse where they prepare beef in a kosher way, there's a way that you, uh, you kill a, a, an animal and then you drain its blood. It's a very particular process. Today, they actually circulate saline solution through the, the body of the animal so that every last vestige of the blood is cleaned out. Okay? It's a part of the kosher process. And here's Jesus just sort of in their face saying, you got to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. He doesn't go a different direction. He just, he just doubles down. And, and it's really kind of funny because you can almost see them going, that's impossibly abhorrent. To drink blood is something that a good Jew would never do. But see, they're just being dull on purpose. Because we can, we can point to places where they understood. Well, let me just show you. Look at verse 35. This is, we looked at this verse last week. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. In, or, in, in other words, to, to receive this life, in verse 35, he says, come to me, believe in me. Now, in verse 54, he says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Eating flesh and drinking blood in verse 54 is the same thing as coming to me and believing in me in verse 35. It's figurative language. Say, so why are you making such a big deal about this? Well, because one example of this is our friends in, in the Roman Catholic Church. They have this dogma, this doctrine called transubstantiation. And it is the idea that you say certain words and 
the bread transforms. It still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread, but it transforms and it becomes actually the body of Jesus. And that the cup, it still looks like wine. It still tastes like wine, but it's transformed so that it actually becomes the blood of Jesus. Because they are, our friends in the Catholic church make the same mistake that these Jews made 2000 years ago. And they take figurative language and they make it literal. Jesus is not saying, eat my body, take a chunk right out of my arm. He's not saying, cut my hand and drink my blood. He's not saying that. He's saying, come to me and absorb everything that I give you. Take my word and digest it. Chew on it until you've, you've found every bit of nourishment for your soul that comes out of that. I'm not interested in getting you from breakfast to lunch. I'm interested in getting you from death to life. Come digest me. Well, that's the final part of this, the digested Messiah. Look at verse 56. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, the one who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, the one who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Think about this. He's asking us to inwardly digest him as the way of life. Life doesn't ultimately come from physical food. In fact, life is merely, uh, actually physical food merely postpones death. It doesn't truly provide life. And so here, he's, he's referring back to that manna. This is, this is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. What a tombstone that would be. Summarize a life in one phrase. They ate and they died. And if physical bread is all you have, that is what your tombstone will say. But if you come to the bread of life and you take it in and you digest it, it will transform you the fathers ate their bread and they died. You eat this bread and I will give you life and I will give it more abundantly. This is the same language that John uses in other places. In John 15, he also says you should abide or remain or dwell in him. There he uses the figure of a vine and branches. Uh, the branch can't produce fruit unless it's connected to the vine, unless it rests, unless it dwells in the vine. That's where the life flows from. Paul uses the same kind of image when he says that a believer is someone who is in Christ Jesus. Or sometimes he'll say, Christ is in me. There's a kind of union that happens when we come to Jesus he, he takes residence in us, and he begins the process of transforming us. Now, here's the thing. 
I, uh, I think about this in terms of wedding cakes. You ever been to a wedding? I've, I've, seen this, I've seen this one time. I've been to a wedding where the wedding cake was, was quite the structure, right? It was beautiful. And r- right when I'm there thinking, I want that part right there, I realize we're just looking at this. They've cut like cheap sheet cake over here. <laughs> and that's what we're actually eating. I was like, no, I came for this cake <laughs> right here. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I'm on display. I'm a beautiful presentation of grace and hope and love. And if you'll just taste me, you can't get it by just looking at it. Looks good, but, but, but you have to taste me. Here's what we do instead. Jesus says, taste me. And we go, yeah, but I don't want to mess up that cake. I'll just go eat some of this mass-produced cake over here. I'll just go eat some of the, the Sam's Club cake. The world is good at producing the mass market cake, the substitutes. When Jesus is offering himself, he's saying, come take me in and experience what I have. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. It's not enough to look at Jesus and to say, you know, that looks pretty good, that whole Christianity thing. You know, I, I like to stand on the fringes. I'd like to be on the outside edges, maybe attend now and again. I mean, I like those, those people that are Christians. They're, they're pretty good people overall. I, I like being around them, but, but I don't want to get in there and actually, you know, have to commit. You know what? The wedding cake can look pretty and you can leave it at that. But if a wedding cake could talk, wouldn't it say, I'm not accomplishing the reason for my existence unless you taste me? Jesus isn't interested in being a buddy somebody that you're sort of casually interested in, somebody that you, that you know about generally, but you sort of keep at arm's distance. He wants you to be in him, and he wants to be in you. Well, I don't know what that'll be like. <laughs> How could you? That's where faith comes in. Come taste Jesus. And what you'll discover is what we've discovered. He's not scary. He's not demanding. He's not domineering. He completely transforms who we were into who we're becoming 
because he's given us bread not to get us from now till lunch, but to get us from death to life. If you've got questions about Jesus, that's fine. But don't let your questions get in the way of receiving the bread of life. Frankly, your questions are probably better, more easily answered on the other side of salvation than they are on this side. I am the bread of life, he said. And if you come to me, if you eat of me, if you digest me, I won't delegate this responsibility. I myself will raise you up on the last day. If you need to know Jesus Christ, man, now is the time. If you're waiting to have all your questions answered, let me tell you, the enemy who doesn't want you to know Jesus will continue to give you questions. You'll never run out of a list of questions. Come to Jesus and talk to Jesus as a friend, as a, as, as a, a, a brother. He's the eldest brother for those of us who have been born into the family. Quit viewing him from a distance and wondering about him. Come into life with him and let him transform your questions. If you need to be a part of a church, man, this is the place. You say, well, yeah, you're the pastor here. You have a vested interest in that. Yeah, but, but, but listen, I'm not the pastor here because I draw a paycheck. I'm the pastor here because I have discovered God here, and I'm never leaving as long as God makes himself known. Come experience God shoulder to shoulder with a people called Evergreen. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're already a member of this church. But for you, there's just been a, a, a sort of a creeping coldness in your relationship. Listen, the good news of the gospel is all you need to do is come down here and present yourself before the throne of grace and just ask God to renew you. Well, I've got some sins going on. Yeah, I, I get that. Come down here and let go of those sins. Quit holding on to what gives you death and start holding on to what gives you life. Our pastors will be here. We'll be glad to talk to you. We'll help you with whatever you need to do. We're going to take just a couple of minutes to sing and, 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 and make it a, a available for you. Do not be intimidated by the size of the crowd in this room because everybody in this room is rooting for you. You come talk to one of our pastors and let's take care of what you need to do with Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Your word is um, incredibly meaningful. This, this teaching about the bread of life makes so much sense to us when we just realize that what you're offering is a life that transforms. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, that you would make yourself known here in unmistakable ways and that whether it is to come into this church or to come into the kingdom by meeting Jesus for the first time, Father, that you will accomplish the design of your heart, which is that nobody would perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of the, of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, make yourself mighty in presence in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with